0: Welcome, everyone, to this week's Fair Territory. The postseason is over, the off season is on, and I want to get right into it today. I'm not going to give you my top 10 free agent list because you're going to read that, Keith Law and The Athletic, Jim Bowden, everybody writes about top 10 lists. We're going to do it a little bit differently. We're going to go into five teams to watch. Now, actually, there are more than five teams to watch, and I might ignore your team. There are 30 teams to watch. We all know that. But these five that I'm going to discuss are at least to me, quite interesting. And then I'm gonna add four more at the end, just some quick thoughts on those particular clubs because they too are interesting. This is not meant to be all encompassing. Spare me your comments. I'm ignoring your team. We'll get to everybody eventually. It's a long off season. But I wanna start with these five teams and we're gonna go one at a time. And I'm gonna start with the Los Angeles Dodgers. The Los Angeles Dodgers, who of course, did not get to where they wanted to be this postseason. They were knocked out ignominiously by the Arizona Diamondbacks, and now they are in quite a pickle. They're in quite a pickle because one of their top starting pitchers from last year, Julio Urias, is a free agent and besides likely to be suspended for a domestic violence allegation. And then Clayton Kershaw, also a free agent and of course announced this week that he underwent shoulder surgery. So let's look at what the Dodgers are left with in their rotation, because that's where I want to start. I'll get to Otani, but let's start with the rotation. The current rotation, Walker Buehler, Bobby Miller, Ryan Peppio, Emmett Sheehan, and Gavin Stone. That would be my best guess. Dustin May and Tony Gonsolin are recovering from surgeries, and as I mentioned, Kershaw and Arias are unsigned. So a lot of Dodgers fans and other fans are saying, whoa, wait. How can the Dodgers go get Otani when they need all this pitching? I would say they need Otani and they need the starting pitching. Both. And I wrote recently about Otani for the Dodgers and why it makes so much sense. And my feeling is they need a little bit more sizzle now. Their fans are frustrated, understandably, with the fact that they've only won one World Series in the Andrew Friedman era and in the shortened season. And it's kind of going to be the same thing all over again next year. Now, granted, these are rich people problems. You have Freddie Freeman. You have Mookie Betts. You have Max Muncie, who just signed an extension. You have all these good players. But you haven't really kind of captivated your fans or at least given them another reason to watch your team next season. The Dodgers will draw either way. They'll draw big without Otani. But if they have Otani, it makes things that much more interesting. So I would say for the Dodgers, Otani is a priority. Two starting pitchers as well is a priority. All right, moving on here, another team that badly is in need of starting pitching, a team that just hired a new head of baseball operations. I'm talking about the Boston Red Sox. Here's a team that obviously was disappointed in its performance last year, given that they fired their chief baseball officer, Haim Bloom. And now let's take a look at their rotation and why they are in need of starting pitching as well. It starts with Chris Sale, okay, Chris Sale hopefully will stay healthy. Brian Bayo showed a lot of promise last year. Nick Pavetta, Cutter Crawford, Tana Halk. And they've got some other needs as well. A right-handed bat, an outfielder, a second baseman. But the Red Sox, what they want to fix, what they want to address first and foremost is their pitching. And they were a team that wanted to get Nathan the last offseason. Didn't happen. He ends up in Texas. You saw what happened in the postseason. So I'm interested to see how the Red Sox go about this. We've heard talk that they too will be in the Otani sweepstakes, and I believe that. The only problem I have envisioning Otani in Boston is he's a guy who likes his privacy. It's a guy who likes his privacy in that fishbowl? I'm not feeling it. All right, let's keep moving on here. The Cardinals are another team, yet another team, in dramatic need of starting pitching. They need not just one, not just two, but three starters at least, because right now let's look at their rotation It is basically in tatters. They have Miles Michaelis at the top with Steven Matz, Zach Thompson, Dakota Hudson, Drew Rahm, who had like an eight ERA after coming over in the Jack Flaherty trade. So you see their needs right there. Starting pitcher, starting pitcher, and starting pitcher. The Cardinals have been vocal about this. They've said quite openly that they plan to address their rotation and in a big way. Could come through a trade, could come through free agency. Probably most likely will come through free agency. The question with the trade and the Cardinals is, will they be willing to give up, say, a Nolan Gorman in a trade? They're willing to give up Dylan Carlson. We know that. And Cardinal fans dreaming of some kind of Dylan Carlson package for a top starter, I don't see that happening. You've got to give up one of your guys that actually is drawing more interest from teams. So, with those three teams and the needs that they have, let's look at the starting pitchers who are available in free agency, the top guys. And you can see that it's a pretty deep group. It's not bad. Blake Snell, likely National League Cy Young winner. Aaron Nola, who has excelled for the Phillies for quite some time. Yoshinobu Yamamoto, the 25-year-old Japanese sensation. Sonny Gray, he's a guy that's been linked to the Cardinals. Jordan Montgomery, a guy who's been linked to the Cardinals. Eduardo Rodriguez opted out of his deal with the Tigers. Marcus Stroman opted out of his deal with the Cubs. And Shota Imanaga, another top Japanese pitcher. Obviously, these guys are going to be in high demand because, as one agent told me yesterday, he has identified six teams, and we just named three of them, who need at least two starting pitchers. Six teams. And, of course, then there are the rest of the clubs that need starting pitching as well. All right, moving on to teams four and five. These are teams that don't necessarily need starting pitching, but certainly are going to be fun to watch or interesting to watch anyway. The Yankees. The New York Yankees, the team that keeps promising changes and new things and all kinds of improvements, well, what exactly are they going to do? Their needs, quite obviously, as you'll see here, are in the outfield. Giancarlo Stanton likely is not going to play much outfield next year. Harrison Bader is gone. Aaron Hicks is gone. Isaiah Kainafalefa is gone. Right now, if you had to put an outfield on the field, it would be Aaron Judge, Esteban Florial and Jake Bowers, most likely. So the Yankees need outfielders. They need left-handed hitting outfielders. Cody Bellinger is an obvious free agent target. Juan Soto is an obvious trade target. The Yankees, too, have a disenchanted fan base. It's a different kind of disenchantment than the Dodgers. The Dodgers keep winning. They just don't win in the playoffs. The Yankees didn't make the playoffs, haven't been to the World Series since 2009 when they won it, and people are wanting to see... A new way here. Some kind of different outlook with the Yankees. Obviously, left-handed hitting should be at a premium. We know that. Starting pitching too, maybe one more, maybe some extra help in the bullpen. Always a wise thing to do for a team. But the Yankees are definitely a team to watch. Seemingly a team that is intent on doing some things differently, though we have yet to see any evidence of any significant changes in their front office or in the way they operate. All right. Finally, the Houston Astros. Now, the Astros, of course, seven straight appearances in the ALCS. Amazing run that they've had here. But as I said on our final ALCS broadcast right before they were eliminated, they are at an interesting crossroads. And they're at an interesting crossroads because some guys are coming up on free agency, some pretty big names. Let's take a look at this now. Two guys who are up for free agency after this season, Jose Altuve and Alex Bregman, free after 2024. Free after 2025, Kyle Tucker and Framber Valdez. Now, both Altuve and Bregman are represented by Scott Boris. Scott Boris generally likes to take his clients to the open market, though he didn't with Altuve the last time. Altuve did sign an extension. So it's not going to be easy, necessarily, to get those guys done. Maybe Altuve, I would think less so on Bregman. Framber Valdez certainly... He's up in a couple of years. It's a little bit different. Kyle Tucker, the same. And Kyle Tucker had a miserable playoff. But Kyle Tucker has been a huge part of what they do and what they have done these past several years. So there has been talk of an extension. We'll see what the Astros end up doing. Of course, they need a manager right now. We'll get into that in a little bit. But the Astros, again, they may come back with similar players next year, the same kind of team. Those guys are all under contract or under control for next season. But at some point, they're going to have to face all of these situations contractually that are coming up. All right, four other teams I want to mention here. Four teams that, yes, could have made my top five quite easily. I'm talking about the Padres, first of all. The Padres, you might have read our report, Evandrelic, Dennis, Lynn, and I last week about how they took out a $50 million loan toward the end of last season to be payroll and how they are cutting payroll. They plan to cut payroll. You saw over the weekend, they did not pick up the options on Michael Waka and Nick Martinez. And maybe the next move is a trade of Juan Soto, who is projected to make some $30 million in arbitration. Padres, definitely a team to watch how they put this all back together. The Orioles. Now, the Orioles are a team that had a great season, but they, as I've said numerous times, need to spend some money. It's time. And I know their owner, John Angelos, hasn't done that before. Their general manager, Mike Elias, hasn't done it either. But they're in a position now where they can be one of the leading contenders in the American League next season, just as they were this season, but they need some veteran starting pitching help. They need to get one of those guys on that list that we just had up there before. Two, ideally, though I don't expect them to do that. The other thing they could do is trade one or more of their prospects for a starting pitcher as well. They have the ability, as I've said numerous times, to do whatever they want. All right, the final two teams, the Cubs. Now, the Cubs are in an interesting spot here. They just lost Stroman, which I don't know that they expected to lose. He gave them $21 million of financial flexibility by opting out. They picked up the option on Kyle Hendricks, picked up the option on Jan Gomes. They are a team that seems ready to win. I would expect they reinvest that $21 million in their pursuit of starting pitching. They're obviously going to need to address either the loss of Bellinger or re-sign him, one or the other. And then finally, the Giants. Now, the Giants are a team that just hired a new manager, Bob Melvin. They are a team that has been seeking a star centerpiece for years now. Goes back to trying to get Giancarlo Stanton before he went to the Yankees. Goes all the way back to that. And yet they have not succeeded. Bob Melvin has had good relationships with Japanese players in the past. I imagine that would help in a pursuit of Otani, but it remains to be seen whether the Giants can pull it off in free agency. If they can't, they've got young talent now, and they've got a president of baseball operations, Farhan Zaidi, who recognizes that he needs to do things a little bit differently. So a trade for a star should not be out of the question for the Giants. A run at Otani, it's certainly not out of the question, and it could come down to Giants and Dodgers and others for the great Japanese two-way star. Time now for the inside dish. And this week, we're gonna go inside all of the managerial openings that still exist, six of them. I should mention at the top, the Marlins had an opening for a head of baseball operations. They have filled that opening. I reported Sunday night, their choice will be the Rays general manager, Peter Bendix. The Marlins have been looking for someone with a Rays background. Could have been Hein Bloom. could have been Peter Bendix, Maybe it could have been James Click. They wanted someone who had worked in a low payroll situation similar to their own. Bendix, of course, comes from the team that has excelled at managing low payrolls better than any in the sport, the Tampa Bay Rays. Now, on to the managers. Six openings currently exist. Now, we're taping this Sunday night. Maybe one gets filled overnight. Maybe one gets filled in the morning. But six going into Monday, into this week. That's one-fifth of the jobs in baseball. Now, we don't know exactly if all of them will have different managers because this all starts with Craig Counsel. Conceivably, yes, he could go back to the Milwaukee Brewers. That's certainly a possibility. He could end up with the New York Mets. He also has interviewed with the Cleveland Guardians. So Council is kind of the pivot point for this whole thing. And as we've written in The Athletic, really for months now, one of the prime considerations for Counsel is money. He was very prominent in the players' union when he was an active major leaguer. And now, as a manager, he wants to set a standard for managers, raise the bar, so to speak. The Mets certainly would give him that opportunity if he is that choice. At that point, it becomes a question of whether the Brewers could match it or get close enough to where he would stay. I don't know the answer to this question. No one seems to. And it gets really interesting if you think about it this way. What if Council goes back to Milwaukee? What if Carlos Mendoza, who also is in the running for the Mets job, the Yankees bench coach, goes to Cleveland? Then what do the Mets do? I don't know. And to me, hiring a first-timer to be the New York Mets manager would be really dangerous. They tried it with Mickey Calloway. They tried it with Luis Rojas. Didn't work. Now, David Stearns is a strong president of baseball operations. Maybe he feels he can hire a first-timer and collaborate with that person and have it all work out. I'm not convinced. New York, much different market, much more rigorous in many ways than other markets. Just the amount of media a manager faces on a daily basis, the amount of attention the Mets get in general, the amount of issues that inevitably surface. So council again is kinda at the center of all this and we'll see how this plays out in the coming days. Now, San Diego also has an opening. Remember, Bob Melvin has left for the Giants And the Padres are somewhat in a similar position to the Mets in one respect. They have hired first time managers in the past under AJ Preller. Andy Green was one, Jace Tingler was another. Those didn't work out. So here's Ryan Flaherty, who is a leading candidate for the Padres job. He's been a coach with the Padres. He of course is familiar and close with Manny Machado from their time together in Baltimore as playing teammates. Would you hire Ryan Flaherty as a first time manager? Maybe that will be their choice. It would be a dangerous one, in my opinion. Mike Schilt is there. He's been there for quite some time. They could hire him as well. But I don't know if it matters necessarily who they hire because they run through managers under Preller like nothing else. This next manager is going to be their sixth in 10 years under AJ Preller. I'm counting Pat Murphy, who was the interim for a better part of a season, the 2015 season, after replacing Bud Black. So the question is, what kind of manager exactly will succeed in San Diego. But Black didn't with A.J. Preller. Bob Melvin didn't with A.J. Preller. Jace Tingler didn't. Andy Green didn't. Pat Murphy was not retained. So we'll see what they come up with out in Padre land, but it's going to be really interesting to see how the relationship between Preller and this next manager evolves. I've talked about Cleveland a little bit. If they do not hire Carlos Mendoza, the consensus according to Paul Hines of the Cleveland Plain Dealer and others, seems to be that Stephen Vogt would be their other choice. First-timer, obviously, Mendoza would be a first-timer as well if they can't get counsel. Don't forget, he's in their mix as well. I'm not as worried about a first-timer in Cleveland where the expectations are lower. It's a different scenario entirely. You have a lower payroll. You also have a winnable division. Pretty good talent in that organization. So that's a good place, in my estimation, for a first-time manager. The Angels and the Astros. Those are the other two openings. Both quite interesting and somewhat similar, actually. You might say, how are the Angels and Astros similar? I'll tell you how. They're similar because their owners, Jim Crane in Houston, Arnie Moreno in Anaheim, are quite involved in the process. Their owners are perhaps the ones making the selections here. Now in Anaheim, my understanding is Buck Showalter is indeed a candidate. But Artie Moreno might prefer someone with a 2002 Angels pedigree. Yes, from the championship team 21 years ago. Darren Erstad, Tim Salmon, someone in that group. Why would you do that? Those are first-time guys who have no experience managing. Actually, Erstad coached at Nebraska, but no other experience. I don't know. Buck Walter would seem to be the kind of guy who could stabilize that place. But I don't know that he's necessarily going to be the choice. And then in Houston, Joe Espada, who has been their bench coach for quite some time now under AJ Hinch and under Dusty Baker, he would seem to be an obvious candidate, but Jim Crane might want a bigger name. Who that bigger name would be, I'm not sure. You've heard of Brad Ausmus's name being thrown around. He's got the link to Jeff Bagwell and Craig Biggio, both of whom are in the Astros front office. Ausmus also has failed twice as a manager. So, That one is going to be really interesting too. What we have seen in the sport is a copycat trend, always. And we've also seen this trend toward collaboration, right? The president of baseball operations, the GM wants a manager with whom he can collaborate. Share the processes. Okay, but let's look at the last three World Series winning managers. I wanna show you this right now, it's interesting. Brian Snicker, 66 years old, Dusty Baker, 73, Bruce Bochy, 68. Now, I'm not saying age and experience is what matters most. Obviously, these postseasons could have turned out differently. We all know that. But there is something to experience. There is something to the old school mentality. Bruce Bochy, hello. The way he manages a game, by feel as well as by the information he has given from his analytical people, it's a combination. And he's allowed to do what he needs to do while watching the game. It's important, really important. So I would expect that there would be a trend or maybe some kind of pattern towards some of these guys coming back. Show Walter would be one of them, Joe Madden might be another. The problem is that the individual styles of Showalter Walter and Joe Madden sometimes do not play well with front offices. Showalter for a variety of reasons, Madden for a variety of reasons. I don't need to go into great detail here, but they are seen as individualists. They are seen as guys who want to do their own thing, not necessarily in the collaboration mode or as much as some others. They might object to that. They might feel that that's an unfair characterization, but that is the way many front offices see them. So as we go through this process and we see all these managers get hired in the coming days. It will be interesting to see if Showalter gets another chance, if maybe Madden gets an interview somewhere, some kind of interest. I don't know. And I don't know if there are other veteran managers out there that suddenly might become more appealing to teams. But the success of the three guys I just mentioned, Snicker, Baker, Bochi, speaks for itself. And yes, they're all different. They all are much different in their approaches and the way they go about it. But they have experience. They have decades of watching games and gaining feel and understanding for what goes on in a game, in a clubhouse, how you do the job. I'm not saying only experienced managers should get these jobs. Managers have to start somewhere. Someone has to be a first timer before they can be experienced. All I'm saying is perhaps now it's time to look at the veteran managers a little bit differently. All right, a little bit different dude and dork approach this week. We are going to do the dude and dork of the postseason. Now, dude of the postseason, I could have gone any number of ways, right? Corey Seager, dude. Adolis Garcia, dude. But the biggest, baddest dude? I just talked about him in the previous segment. Bruce Bochy, manager of the Texas Rangers. And I want to take you back to the end of the regular season when the Rangers lost 3-4 or in Seattle, lost the tiebreaker to the Astros for the division title. I was there for Fox that final weekend in Seattle, and I watched the Rangers and I thought, man, there is no way. There is no way this team is going to make much of an impact in the postseason. They've got to fly all the way across the country to Tampa Bay to play the Rays, very good Rays team, as opposed to getting a bye, and then they've got to keep going from there. Well, what happened? You guys saw what happened. They beat the Rays. They beat the Orioles, they beat the Astros, they beat the Diamondbacks. And all along, we saw again, the mark of Bochi all over this thing. With the way he handled his pitching, just with the way his club responded to adversity and stayed cool. Bochi's greatest strength is his even demeanor. I wrote about this in my final column on the World Series. People talk about his bullpen management, that's really good, of course. But it's his personality, It's his calmness that really resonates with players and his coaches as well. So Bruce Bochy, fourth World Series title. He was going to the Hall of Fame even before this. Now he's going to the Hall of Fame with an extra added thing on his resume. And what a great thing it is. Four World Series titles. The only manager with four or more to do it with two different teams. Bruce Bochy, dude of the postseason. Dork of the postseason? I'm going to give it to two different entities, Major League Baseball and the umpires union. The reason I'm going to give the dork of the week to those two particular entities is because of the lack of transparency that goes on with the selection of umpires for the postseason. Now I'm going to show you the criteria that MLB has shared with me and explains how they choose the umpires, but it doesn't go far enough in my opinion. Let's take a look right here. Here's the criteria. Regular season performance, situation handling, communication and conflict resolution, rules enforcement, and experience. Experience also is a factor. Now, regular season performance, I know there is obviously a Twitter account or an X account that rates the umpires. You can see the ball strike ratings for each particular game. That's fine, but that's not what Major League Baseball is using. They're using their own methodology. And then the other things that I saw listed there or had listed there from Major League Baseball, those are somewhat subjective. Conflict resolution, how they handle the new rules, all these different things. That's how baseball judges, and that's fine. Baseball is entitled, as are the umpires, to determine the umpires however they see fit. I get that. What I would like to see is more transparency, that's all. Show us the ratings. The players have this complaint and it's a very valid complaint. They say, we're rated, You see our numbers on the scoreboard, every time we come to bat, every time we take the mound. Yet we never know which umpires are rated the highest. That's a fair complaint. And the reason I included the umpires union in this, and I don't know this for a fact, but I am assuming it, maybe unwisely, but I'm assuming it, the umpires union doesn't want that stuff out there. If they did, I would assume it would be out there. So Major League Baseball and the umpires union, I know we're moving toward a challenge system with robo-umps in the future, and that will be a great thing, no doubt. Challenge a couple of calls a game, that would be healthy for the sport. But until then, and that moment is not coming next season, most likely, until then, I would like to see greater transparency. It's not that much to ask. All right, time now for Grilling Ken. This is the segment, of course, in which I answer your questions, the ones you submitted to our show on X. Let's start with the first question this week. It comes from Fire Press Taylor. Not sure what that's a reference to, but that's the person's account. Fire Press Taylor asks, are the Marlins going to rebuild? Have to think with the front office instability, they're going back to square one. Bruce Sherman should sell to someone with money. All right. None of those things are happening. They're not going to rebuild, not going to tear it down in a classic sense. Josh Bell has taken his player option, exercised it. He'll be back next year. Solaire declined his option. They need to decide now whether to give him a qualifying offer. Johnny Cueto won't be back. But they have, again, even without Sandy Alcantara for next season, coming off the Tommy John, the makings of a good rotation. They had a decent bullpen this year. They need more offense. We know that. But I don't see them going backwards. They just hired, or are about to hire, Peter Bendix to run their baseball operations. What they want Peter Bendix to do is kind of emulate what he did along with Eric Neander in Tampa Bay, which has put a competitive team on the field for as little money as possible. That's what Tampa Bay does. They do it very well. That will be the idea in Miami. They're not going into a rebuild and we have seen no signs, at least as of yet, that Bruce Sherman intends to sell. Whether we want him to sell, whether he should sell, whether the franchise would be best served by him selling, that is another question entirely. All right, next we go to Chris Donald who asks, do you think Bryce Harper should permanently move to first base or return to the outfield? Which is better for him and which is better for the Phillies? This is a really interesting question, and it's a question, Chris, that kind of the Phillies offseason hinges on, at least part of it. They're going to have to address their rotation whether it's re-signing NOLA or getting someone else. But the Harper question is a big one. Dave Dombrowski, the president of baseball operations, has said he wants to hear from Bryce what he wants to do. Now, what's interesting here is that Bryce Harper played an above-average first base according to the advanced metrics, even though that was the first time this season that he had ever played that position. For the wear and tear on his body, first base probably is better for him long-term, and maybe he sees it that way. Or... Maybe he says, you know what, I really would rather play the outfield. That's home to me. That's where I've been my whole career, or pretty much my whole career. I'd like that. Obviously, whatever he decides, then a number of other decisions will follow. If Bryce Harper decides to play the outfield, maybe at that point the Phillies say, okay, let's bring back Reese Hoskins, who of course missed the entire season with knee surgery. The Phillies also, if Bryce Harper plays first base on the other hand, would be perhaps in a more flexible position with their outfield. You can DH Schwarber, put Marsh, Pache, Rojas, and of course Castellanos, some combination of those guys in the outfield. You'd be better defensively as they were when Bryce was at first and they had Schwarber DHing this season. There are all kinds of ways they can go, but it seems to me, based on Dombrowski's comments, that they're going to put a lot of stock into what Bryce Harper's desires are, and understandably so. He is their centerpiece. He's signed for a long time and they want to do what's best for him. And of course, what's best for the franchise as well. Finally, the third question this week comes from Jeff Quitt. Jeff says, the Cubs have money and prospects and have publicly vowed to contend. What free agent are they most likely to sign? In your opinion, could Soto be in the mix? To answer the Soto question, he certainly should be in the mix. If Juan Soto is going to get traded this offseason, every team with a need like the Cubs and even some without a need would want Juan Soto. Granted, only one year left of control, it's about 30 million in the final year of arbitration, and then you obviously face the possibility of losing him in free agency. It's, it's a risk you take. But it also depresses the trade return. It's not going to be as significant as what the Padres gave the Nationals for Soto when he had two plus years of control. One year of control at $30 million, price goes down. So the Cubs, yes, they should be in the mix. I don't like to predict which teams are going to sign which free agents because free agency is so unpredictable that those things are invariably silly when you make predictions. I don't have any inside information. But if they don't get Soto and they can't re-sign Bellinger, clearly an outfielder with power is going to be in need. There aren't many available in free agency other than Bellinger, quite frankly. So I expect the Cubs to do that, address the outfield. I also expect them to look for a free agent starting pitcher to replace Stroman and address other areas of the team as well. Thanks everyone for your questions. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. I am off on Monday to the GM meetings in Phoenix. I'll be there until Thursday. Then I'm traveling to St. Louis for a celebration of Tim McCarver's life. And this is going to be something that's held over two days. And Tim, of course, played a great role in my career. He was incredibly kind to me when I joined the broadcast team in 2006. If he had not accepted me and not been so professional in the way he treated me, it would not have worked. Him and Joe Buck both. So I'm indebted to Tim. I love Tim. I miss him. And I'm looking forward to that event. All right, you know what to do. Like us, subscribe to us, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great week, everyone. Hey, get in on the action with the FT fam at BetMGM. New customers use the bonus code FOUL, F-O-U-L, for a $1,500 first bet offer. Download the BetMGM Sportsbook app on iOS or Android or visit BetMGM.com. Sign up and deposit at least $10 into your BetMGM Sportsbook account. Place your first wager and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if the bet loses. If that bet does lose, your bonus bets will be available once your initial wager is settled. Gambling problem or concern? Call one 800 gambler